Open your Bibles with me to uh, Job. It's just before the Psalms. Uh, Psalms are right in the middle of the book. Just uh, turn a little bit earlier and you'll find Job. If you haven't got a we're going to uh, read all of the first chapter and uh, a little way into the second chapter. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send to have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also was with them. The Lord said, Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, Fire from God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the shepherds, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put your servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. 
On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. The Lord said to Satan again, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. Stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. He is in your hands. But you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Let's pray. Father, we have read this story, and uh, some of us have read it many, many times. We begin to see some of the issues that are there, Lord. We ask that as we study this, as we study the whole book, that you would help us to understand your relationship with this world. And by doing so, Lord, to have a deeper understanding of who we are and who you are. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I think television is a, is, a, is a wonderful but dangerous medium. It provides us with information and pictures, which is great. But there is no real engagement. Now that becomes especially dangerous, I think, when we're thinking about issues of uh, suffering. I still remember very vividly the pictures from uh, Bosnia a few years ago, the house in which all the occupants had been burned alive. I don't know whether you remember it. And uh, there amidst the charred remains was a, was a blackened hand reaching to the sky as if it was beckoning to someone who never came. One of those moments when I, for a moment, lost my detachment, and I began to sense the pain and, and agony of that house that became a funeral pyre. But then the weather forecast came on. And then there was a mindless uh, comedy the pain was gone. There was no smell. There were no grieving relatives to interact with. There were, there were no more than a couple of minutes in which I was forced into this other world and then forced out of it again. I couldn't stay there. I couldn't even look back over my shoulder at it. It was gone. Actually, I began to learn a little bit more about the personal nature of pain when... Uh, a 12-year-old girl in a, in a youth club that I used to lead was uh, killed in a car accident. 
I remember speaking to her mother, who was a single parent. Her mother told me that uh, this daughter had been the best friend she'd ever had. Her death was a cruel intrusion. It was a, it was a horror. It was a scandal. It, it filled her mourning family with grief and anger in equal measure. Why did it happen? Perhaps more precisely, why is there so little correlation between sin, which deserves to be punished, and suffering? Why, why do murderous monsters in the Balkans go free whilst innocent women and children die? Why is there innocent suffering in this world? Now, history has spawned all sorts of solutions to that problem. Now, one very ancient one is, uh, is polytheism. The world uh, seems so random that many, many ancient cultures have suggested that uh, behind the scenes there must be a whole host of gods fighting and squabbling with each other to help us to understand this uh, question. Or uh, another ancient attempt, which is in some ways similar to polytheism, is dualism. That suggests that, in fact, instead of many, many gods, there are really just two equal and opposite forces in eternal struggle with each other, the force of good and the force of evil. Another ancient worldview is called uh, pantheism, represented today, for instance, by Buddhism. According to pantheism, we should not think of of uh, God or gods separate from the material universe. Rather, actually, they are just a permeating force within the universe. Pantheists believe, in fact, that good and evil are ultimately illusory. There is no objective standard by which we can measure good and evil. They say that just everything in the world just is, and God is coexistent with that. Try to say that something is bad, they say. In fact, they misunderstand the world. Or uh, a fourth very ancient uh, belief about the world is, is today represented by Islam. It's a, it's a form of monotheism, believing in one God who is transcendent above the universe, which says that uh, God is absolutely sovereign over everything and absolutely unquestionable in his person. His judgments are inscrutable and utterly perfect. In, in, in this view, you see, evil is a mysterious reality which we just should not question. We should just accept them from God. Muslims have a phrase, inshallah, which means if God wills. expresses a sort of resignation to the will of God. We cannot know why these things happen. We just accept it from the hand of God. And there are many modern variants of those themes. A uh, hundred years ago that, or so, there were a lot of uh, uh, people called deists who believed that there is only one God, he is good, but that he no longer really controls the world. That's why evil is here. He wound up the world at the beginning, and now he looks on powerlessly as uh, we damage ourselves. And there are even people uh, today who boldly uh, say they are atheists. 
They say there is no such thing as God. There is only the material world which exists. In many ways, actually, they're rather like pantheists because uh, they don't believe in anything transcendent beyond the world. They say that evil is, is ultimately meaningless. We just live in a random, absurd universe. We just need to accept the absurdity of it. There are no shortage of solutions to the problem of evil. Yet the weakness of everyone is that they are solutions. They all of them say, effectively, your experience of evil may be very painful, but... But it is only the gods having a punch-up. But evil is ultimately illusory. But we must accept that good and evil are, uh, are in an eternal battle with each other. But we must never question the Almighty. And the Bible says something distinctly and radically different from that. The Bible says, without equivocation, evil is truly awful. All mankind senses that evil is a dreadful disjunction in the world. That we need to, to, to interact with. And the more we explore the heart of God, the more we realize that in fact it is a terrible disjunction at the very heart of who God is. Characteristic thing that the Bible says is that, in fact, there is no explaining away of evil. No. The more we come to know God, the more, in fact, we see that evil is a terrible thing that we need to interact with as God interacts with us. That's the theme of the book of Job. Again and again, the, uh, the book questions all the standard, simple answers that we might try to have about uh, the existence of innocent suffering in the world. Uh, in the world. At the end, I hope we will have, at the end of our, of our series of studies, I hope we will have a deeper understanding of God and how he interacts with suffering and evil. But we will not have a simple answer that, that explains why there is innocent suffering. In fact, it would be a travesty if we did, because it would try to explain something away that in fact does not need to be explained away. Needs to be engaged with as God does. Well, we can only set the scene this morning and uh, start to understand uh, the, the issues, and that's what we're going to do as we look at these uh, the first chapter and uh, uh, a half, really, of, uh, of the book of Job. The first thing we want to, I want us to look at is uh, Job's contribution to his suffering. Verse 1 sets the scene for that. Verse 1 tells us Job has done nothing to contribute to his suffering. 
the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. That's uh, uh, the, the scene that is set. Whether Job is a real historical figure or not, we don't actually know for certain. It could be an extended parable, this whole book. Maybe that it's based on a, on a, a core of truth that has been expanded to help us to interact with the issue. Not even certain where the land of Uz is. The main purpose of the book, you see, is not to record a chunk of history, but to explore a reality which happens again and again throughout history and the, throughout the world. Innocent people suffer. Job fits perfectly the Old Testament picture of a saint. He's blameless, and God has blessed him abundantly. Verse 2, he had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And there's no self-satisfied superficiality or prudishness about Job's goodness either. He has an earnest desire that he and his family should stay right with God. His sons, verse 4, used to take turns holding feasts in their homes and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. That's not a sin, that's just a celebration of God's goodness. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular uh, custom. Perhaps there's a secret sin. I will make sure that we're still right with God, he says. We must not forget, as Job's suffering unfolds, this key truth. Job is innocent. He is more innocent than any other person in his day. Of course he wasn't perfectly sinless, but he has done everything that he can to be right with God. There is nothing about his life that singles him out for suffering. Actually, fascinatingly and disconcertingly, what singles him out is his very goodness. Did you notice that in verse 8? And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, there is lots and lots of suffering in this world which is directly related to sin. Now, the criminal goes to prison. The bomb maker is blown up by his own bomb. The uh, malicious, malicious, vindictive person loses his or, all, her, or her friends. Sometimes there are clear consequences for our sins, but not all suffering is associated with sin in that way. Far too often, people conclude that suffering Comes, has come into their lives because God is displeased with them. Paradoxically, Job's suffering has come into his life for the opposite reason. There is no simple relationship between sin and suffering. Job's contribution to his suffering is zero. Well, the next thing we look, need to look at then after Job's contribution to his suffering is God's contribution to Job's suffering. And here we get to the nub of the problem. 
God is very clearly sovereign over the th- everything that happens to Job. He's portrayed as like a, like a great potentate in his celestial courtroom, verse uh, 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Angels are enormously powerful spiritual creatures, and even they bow down to God. Actually, even Satan himself bows the knee. Some suggest that uh, verse 7, where God says, where have you come from, indicates that uh, Satan's perhaps turned up by surprise and God's lost control of him. But that's not the case. No, uh, Satan, like every other angel, must present himself before the throne of God. God rules even him. His name, actually, is accuser. That's what Satan means. And that is the essence of his activity. He vents his malevolence upon mankind by displaying uh, our sins before God and demanding that God exercise his justice. And, And he says he is restless and untiring. He tells the Lord that he has been roaming through the earth, going to and fro in it. Surely, though, Satan is going to be thwarted by righteous Job. That almost seems to be what God thinks, isn't it? Have you ever considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. But Satan, you see, is typically cynical about anyone's righteousness. Verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Job's righteousness, he says, is not as deep as it appears. Perhaps Job's so-called righteousness is just a a shallow self-interest. He's not concerned with glorifying God. He's concerned with self-advancement says Satan. And so God allows Satan to test Job's integrity. God himself hands Job over to Satan. So begins the tragedy. We read it, didn't we? In quick succession, the oxen and the donkeys are carried off by a foreign tribe and all but one of the servants is killed. Lightning strikes another region, causing a bushfire which kills all the sheep and more of his servants. Another tribal uh, raiding party comes and carries off camels and, and kills yet more servants. And finally a whirlwind destroys the house in which his offspring are feasting and all his children die. It's a terrible picture. Satan thus demonstrates all the ferocity of his malice towards mankind. Notice that Satan himself has control over both mankind and nature. Do you see that? Sabians and Chaldeans, other tribes, are used in this. A lightning and a whirlwind contribute to Job's downfall. And Job's downfall is swift and devastating. What's God's role in that then? Is God responsible for this terrible injustice that comes upon Job? Well, you see, the true answer is yes and no. 
You see, there is no doubt in this chapter and the subsequent one of God's overall sovereignty. Satan has no freedom apart from God's permission. But the text is very, very careful to show us that God himself is not the author of malevolence. He is uh, uh, a sovereign asymmetrically, as it were, over good and evil. God's whole heart, his whole intention for his people and for his world is good. And as such, he is fully and wholly and, and unequivocally a, a sovereign over good things. But when it comes to evil, this text says there is something else more subtle going on. God does not hate righteous Job, does he? Satan hates him. God respects him. Notice also that though Satan tries to incite God personally against Job, Satan says, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. God will not do that personally. He will not be the personal agent of Job's innocent suffering. Satan is the agent of Job's downfall. Job's disasters do occur by divine permission, but they do not occur by God's initiative, and they do not occur by God's hand. No one is trying to pretend that that gives us a simple answer. I hope I made that case very clearly at the beginning. There are, there are 40 chapters of discussion in Job to go yet before we even start to, be, to come to any sort of satisfactory resolution. But right at the beginning, that distinction is very, very important. You know, many, many people opt for a sort of simple dualism in their understanding of, of uh, evil. They either see the devil as a sort of equal and opposite force to God, or they think that perhaps God has a has a corresponding dark side to his nature. And neither of those is true. The devil is not an equal and opposite force to God. He is subject to God. And God does not himself have a dark side to his nature. There is no evil in God. Now the reality of evil in this world is not so easily explained. More than that, if you look at this chapter, God is actually seen as actively limiting the extent of Job's suffering. See what he says initially in verse 12? The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then uh, God again, when Satan returns to uh, discuss Job, and uh, wants to bring more trouble on his life, God again is limiting Satan's power. Chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Now Job suffers most terribly. He breaks out in painful sores, he itches, he comes close to death. 
But the story clearly portrays God seeking to minimize the worst excesses of Satan's fury. Now, when I talk to people about the, the, this problem of, of how can an all-powerful and all-loving God allow evil, they say again and again the same thing to me. They say, the thing that really troubles them is the sheer extent of injustice in this world. I don't, I don't want to trivialize the pain of that. But I do want to ask you a question. Can you not imagine it any worse? Because I can. Now, just occasionally, as, as recently in Kosovo, we catch a glimpse of the horrific power of evil which lurks just below the surface in many, many cultures. And we are rightly horrified by that. But doesn't that also point to God's restraining hand in situation after situation after situation? Who knows how many relationships God quietly heals, how many natural disasters he averts, how many wars he prevents in this world. Now our real problem is not the extent of innocent suffering. Our real problem, rightly, is that there can be any innocent suffering. What is God's contribution to Job's suffering then? Well, it is ambiguous. Make no mistake, God is not the same as Satan. God is more powerful and no evil comes by his initiative. Well, that's as far as we have got so far. This uh, story is going to have to run over four weeks for us to start to build the picture. If you're here for a one-off, I do apologize about that. We've only taken the very first steps in understanding, almost plotting out the nature of the problem. Let me just end, though, by pointing out to you three important uh, solutions that Job avoids. Firstly, Job does not conclude that God is not in control. In fact, rather the opposite. Did you see in verse 21, chapter 1? Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He knows he must deal with a sovereign God. A God who gives and a God who takes away. There is no getting around it. Second simple solution that he avoids is the solution is the conclusion that God is not good. We read in verse uh, 20, didn't we, actually, that he fell to the ground in worship. We saw at the end of verse 21, may the name of the Lord be praised. They're extraordinary words from this man who has just been just lost everything. 
Now, Job is going to express grave doubt. Job is going to shout in God's face before this book is finished. But he is not going to lie down and just say, oh, well, God's got his bad side. He is determined to come through to a position where he can with integrity praise and worship God. And he will accept no simple shortcuts to that position. And thirdly, Job does not, the third simple solution that Job avoids is just to fail to interact with the problem at all. Job's wife seems to almost uh, offer him a simple way out. Quick bit of Hari Kiri, perhaps, chapter 2, verse 9. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. So why go through all this struggle you're going through, God, uh, Job? Why bother? Lie down and give up. Job says, no, she is a fool to say that. It is worth struggling with these things. He knows it. Now, man, many, many people today sadly cop out at it precisely that point. They will not struggle with this issue. All this about God still being in control, all this about God being good, they say, is just sophistry. They'd rather just say God's evil and be done with it. Now, Job won't do that. In the end, Job is going to, to discover that the solution to his problem is not actually a formulaic answer. It's a pilgrimage. You're looking for a pat answer, a quick answer about the problem of innocent suffering. You will never find one. There has never been a philosopher who has found a truly satisfactory answer in a theorem because theorems always end up by explaining away the terrible incongruity of evil. If we describe Job's troubles to, to a polytheist that we were talking about at the beginning, perhaps to a tribal holy man, you know, he, he would have a reasonably simple conclusion. He would say go, Job had obviously offended some god or other, and they just needed to prescribe the right placatory sacrifices and all would be well. If you went to the Buddha and described Job's situation, he would tell us with a beatific smile that we lacked enlightenment. Job needed to see that his riches and his suffering were both illusions. If we went to Muhammad and we told him about Job's suffering, he would say that we must meekly lie down and submit to the will of Allah. If we went to a thoroughgoing atheist and told him about Job's suffering, he would tell us that this world is full of such meaningless absurdities and we might as well just live with it. You see, if we go to the God of the Bible, we find his son, Jesus, weeping over the tomb of a man. 
weeping for a whole city, confiding to his friends that his heart was, is overwhelmed with trouble even to the point of death. In the end, Job and others will find satisfaction, not in a theorem, but in a relationship. Not a superficial, casual, easy-come, easy-go type of relationship. For Job, there is going to be intense personal struggles, agony, fear, anger, pain. But he is not going to give up. And in the end, he is not going to be disappointed. I have to come back for the next few weeks to see how he comes through to fullness of Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we uh, want over this week and subsequent weeks to start to learn the lessons that this uh, important book teaches us. We want to do that, Lord, because we recognize that uh, the reality of suffering and innocent suffering in this world is, is ubiquitous. We pray again for uh, young Travis. Lord, we ask that you would help him as you helped Job. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, that you would uh, help us to come to terms with this uh, great problem in the world and to come to a fullness of faith in you. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Brothers mentioned uh, here, most of them are promised some, some good things. They are sort of the foot soldiers of faith, if you like to put it that way. Zebulun, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Benjamin, Joseph, of course, who's been the, uh, the star of the story in many ways, gets a special mention and is blessed effusively by his father. But funnily enough, Joseph is not the one who gains the most privileged place in the family. No, it is Judah who gets the greatest privilege in the family. And it's very important that we notice that. Your brothers will praise you, verse 8. Your hand will be on your, the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. That's very significant, that verse, because, of course, uh, 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 Joseph had had a vision that all his brothers would bow down to him. And that had happened, but for future generations, says Jacob, it will not be Joseph. It will be Judah.
You're a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. The obedience of the nations is his. Judah is to take the royal succession. Judah is the progenitor of Jesus, as we saw. Judah is the guardian of the promises to Abraham. Why? Well, it could be, as in the case of Ephraim and Manasseh, that it's just divine whim. God does that sometimes. But actually, if we follow the story, and you can remember the story, you will know that it's not for that reason at all in this case. Remember in chapter 38? Do you remember uh, how that whole chapter was to, devoted to showing how Judah had to public, publicly acknowledge his hypocrisy in using his daughter-in-law as a prostitute and then seeking to prosecute her? Remember how uh, the key moment in Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers was the moment that Judah was prepared to be put in jail in order to save Benjamin. See, Judah has seen the darkness and blackness of his own heart and acknowledged it. And Judah has been completely transformed, turned around. He has shown real repentance And fascinatingly enough, it is to such a man that God entrusts the future of the world. Isn't that interesting? Actually, if you are naturally good, if you are not prone to great temptations, if you have no major moral failures in in your life, rejoice about that, but recognize that actually even that brings its own dangers. In such people, there is often not actually a very deep appreciation of the wonder of what it means to be forgiven our sins. The people whom God chooses to use in extraordinary ways are the Judas of this world. People who, for one reason or another, have been transfixed by God's wonderful and overwhelming saving grace and have had their lives turned around as Judah had had. Those are the people God really uses for his glory. Uh, Last week, Jonathan Aitken uh, went to jail, didn't he? Professing repentance and faith. And of course, everyone was scoffing. And uh, I have no doubt that as with Judah, we will have to wait to see the reality of that repentance. Judah needed a particular circumstance to really demonstrate his repentance. But I'll tell you something. At midnight on the 31st of December 1999, when all the fireworks are going off, when all the great celebrations are happening, God's concentration, the focus of God's attention will not be on all these great things that mankind is doing. 
It will be on ordinary people who have seen the blackness of their own hearts and who have been turned around. And yes, some of them may even be in jail on that day. The future of this world rests with Judah and those like him. If you have discovered God's grace and forgiveness, if your life has been turned around in the way that Judah's life has been turned around, and the future belongs to you because you are the sort of person that God will use. Lord, when we look around at this world, as Joseph looked around at his world, it is so easy to imagine that the powers that we easily see are the ones that make a difference. Lord, give us the faith of Jacob and Joseph who can see beyond the visible and beyond even their own lives. And Lord, give us the peace that comes from that. If there is any of us who has yet to know the experience that Judah so clearly demonstrated in recognizing his sin and having his life turned around. I pray that you would for do that for us this morning. And that when we do that, Lord, that you would give us a deep sense that under your hand the future is ours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.